Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Have you heard of David A. Johnston? A lot of people haven't, but he's so important and we're able to sit down with him on today's episode. David literally founded the concept and put his money where his mouth is for decentralized applications. He launched the Decentralized Applications Fund in 2014, back in a day when no one was really investing or talking about apps or tokens or ICOs. None of this existed yet. And then he founded and currently serves as the chairman of the board of directors for Factum since December of 2014. Factum is a decentralized publication protocol for building record systems that are immutable and independently verifiable. Concepts like that, when you launched in 2014, no one was talking about them. No one was doing them. And literally, I would meet David in Panera Breads to talk about the future of crypto. Going back to 2013, we would literally sit over soup and talk about this stuff. And now... David is one of the most well-known and has invested in so many companies you are using today in the space. We owe him a lot of credit for being a pioneer when a lot of people were saying that what he was doing was stupid. David talks about this today and how he had the foresight to do some of the things that none of us ever thought about doing. Give some love to the sponsors and I'll talk to you guys just in a minute. If you're buying, selling, or holding crypto, you are a low-hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their Crypto Tax Health Check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey, guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? 
and these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, this show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My next guest, David Johnston, before I usually do things where I'll I'll do some research and, and introduce you to my guests, first thing I wanted to say is thank you, David, for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I really want to, I really want my listeners to have a understanding of what the world was like back in 2011, 2013, and who you are and why it's so important what you did. A lot of people throw around the term pioneer and they call me pioneer. But when I look at you, I really use the term pioneer. And, and I have to say that because in the times that you did what you did, really, not only was no one else doing it, but a lot of people were telling you it was a bad idea and it would never work. And that was really uh, paving the way for a multi-coin universe in the crypto space because you know that back then it was it was all Bitcoin, and you know you have a quote that you that you uh, that you're famous for Johnston's law: it's everything that can be de- decentralized will be decentralized. Um, going back to 2013, you know I remember the San Jose Bitcoin Conference. That was the first real. Um, Bitcoin conference where people came from around the world. And would you agree with me when I say that in, in that like, there was, there was like some pure coin and name coin, but there, but those were seen as like, not jokes, but they were novelties. They weren't taken seriously. It was more of something that you did for fun. They, they weren't um, being seen as like threats or something that uh, money would go into. And then you founded bit angels with Michael Turpin and Sam and when you did that, that was the first time that really people were starting to take um, decentralized blockchain-based infrastructure projects seriously, like MadeSave, Ethereum, Factum. When Factum launched in 2014, and you still sit on the board today of Factum, um, you wrote in 2013 the general theory of decentralized applications. That paper really made people wonder, hey, like... Can we have other coins other than Bitcoin or other blockchain projects not on the the Bitcoin um, infrastructure? Can that be really uh, something that we'll see in the future? And, you know, you can be the biggest Bitcoin maximalist you want today, but we are living in a multi-coin universe now. We are living in a multi-chain universe. And you predicted that. And a lot of people told you it was stupid. And you predicted that, and here we are today. Do you think that? Did you see? Did you first see it happening as fast as it did? And would you say that we're we're successful in in where we are today in, in the crypto world? Well, Charlie, thanks for all the kind words. Yeah, no, it was an amazing time. I mean, the San Jose Bitcoin Conference was sort of this watershed event. Right, where all the energy had really been online, right? Everybody was talking 
on Bitcoin Talk back in the day, uh, on Reddit, right? We were all following as every new merchant was adding Bitcoin. People were getting excited about that. Um, and so, yeah, it really wasn't until May of 13, everybody kind of came together for the first time. It was, I almost describe it as like the, I don't know, the, the Woodstock moment of our industry, right? The Woodstock moment. I right? like that. You know, and because they were expecting, I think, 500, 600 people at the conference and 1,200 people showed up for the first day. I mean, the energy in the room was just incredible. And I, I remember back to that day, what struck me was every conversation was interesting. Every conversation I had with somebody, they were an economist or a cryptographer or an investor or somebody who was doing something really interesting. Like I would turn to my right, you know, and here's the Coinbase guys at their booth, right? And I would turn to my left and here's, you know, Roger uh, running the booth uh, for the Bitcoin store, right? And, you know, here's Vinny explaining to me about, you know, uh, the first company to take Bitcoin for gift cards, right? Gift, right? So it was just all these amazing interactions. And yeah, it sort of culminated that first night when I and Sam were hanging out after the first day and we met Michael Turpin. And Michael said to me, you know, it's weird that there's not an angel group yet, you know, investing in all these cool projects. And I said, well, hey, let's start one. And uh, he famously said, okay, let's call it the Bit Angels. And I said, all right, great. We'll do our first meeting tomorrow. I love the term Bit, <laughs> bit Angels term is is the best the best name for it because that's really what, what it was. And I feel like the energy in that room was really um, like butterflies coming out of the cocoon, right? Like we're all caterpillars. We're all in our in our different places around the world where we were living and we all existed on the computer only. And at this event, it was like, you're like, you're like, and you can't really see me right now, but I'm like lifting my hands in front of my eyes as if I'm like ripping apart the cocoon and the sunlight is, is blocking, you know, it's, it's hurting my eyes and you're coming out and you're like, is this real? These are other people that do the same thing I do. This is, this is, this is Bitcoin. And people were selling tea. It was like, a that conference was like, a um, like a fair, like a Renaissance fair, you know, or whatever. What do you call them? The when all the the jousting and when all the people dress up in in all these like old Renaissance uh, uniforms from old medieval England, and we're all like hanging out, and we're and we come out of our shells because here, here we are, like in the real world, where you know bankers or whatever, and then and then here we go in the Bitcoin world, and we're secretly Bitcoin. And that was the energy of the room. I remember that. Yeah. Now, the urgency in the room was like palatable. Um, so, literally that night, the urgency was so much that we we're like, okay, well, let's, there's a second day of the conference. Let's have our first meeting tomorrow. And I went back to my hotel room and put up the website that night for Bid Angels. I made a post on Reddit. I was like, hey, anybody wants to come to the first meeting of Bid Angels, we'll you know, have it tomorrow. I had my speech, I want to say the second day, and I think I announced it uh, during uh, my talk, like, hey, we're going to get together. And we invited a few people and like 30 people showed up to the first meeting. And it's like, you know, Vinny and Roger and all the early guys uh, showed up. We, we actually, we didn't have a place to hold the meeting. So we crashed the hackathon room. <laughs> we like took over uh, a back corner of the hackathon room and just had this impromptu 
uh, meeting for that for was um, bit of angels. that was Adam Draper's hackathon, right? Uh, he might have put it on. Uh, that 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 sounds likely. Uh, I don't know who organized. I remember it. that. That was upstairs in the in the corner of that hackathon. I, I yep. showed up. I remember I was actually physically with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss that night at dinner, mm-hmm. and we all went to the hackathon at like one o'clock in the morning, and there were still people there, like doing stuff, like hacking and not hacking but writing writing scripts and writing programs and 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 doing things and i'm like these people are actually working on bitcoin stuff who's paying them no one is right well you know it's the cool thing about bitcoin is it's sort of self-monetizing right if you hold bitcoin then you're incentivized to want to see the network prosper and so you know i remember we had that first meeting and then uh michael who is great at PR, uh, somehow got the the news out to TechCrunch. And there was a TechCrunch article about BitAngels very shortly thereafter. And so we sort of ballooned from having, you know, the initial 30 or 40 people to 500 angel investors all around the world. And we would pick a community leader or city leader from you know, Chicago, there's Matt Rozak, you know, somebody in Singapore, somebody in, you know, all the different cities. But we decided to do it all online, right? So we'd have these weekly pitches where the startups would come and talk to all the investors. And instead of, you know, Angel Group typically is just in one city, here we had the distributed nature of Bitcoin, right? Like, okay, well, just get everybody online. We'll do one big pitch. We'll record the thing and ship it out to all 500 of the members. But like you said, um, just to close the loop on on your thought, like that act of having a group of people that wanted to fund these ideas was really powerful in solidifying sort of like we're moving into this next step for the ecosystem, right? Because there's there's people ready to cut checks for these projects, right? And things really started moving quickly. But it was cool to get that exposure to so many of the early projects as they they came along in 2013, and that sort of, you know, that I think led to the energy, you know, of the Master Coin, uh, which came through BitAngels later in August of that year, right? Uh, where J.R. Willett had a place to go and pitch a bunch of other people that were excited about these type of ideas. And Master Coin um, was such a big deal. Because that was built on the Omni protocol, if I remember correctly, and um, the Omni protocol, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but Omni was the first type of way to to launch your own digital assets on top of the Bitcoin protocol, and that's what Tether uses today. And so people don't realize that this infrastructure, for example, Tether, that you're using, you know, USDT, which is we're all using today um, was built on top of Bitcoin. Came out of that um, BitAngels group, and if I if I understand correctly, you 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 sit on the board or one of the directors of, of Omni, correct? So yeah, back in 2013, uh, the story is J.R. Willett uh, came to the BitAngels group. I was serving as the executive director at the time, and say, hey, I've got this proposal for how we can do assets on Bitcoin. And this, I thought, oh, this is great. I've been looking for a project that wanted to Wait, do assets on Bitcoin. What does that mean? And I know now what it means, but help my listeners get into a frame of reference. Like what year was this? And were there any other 
assets on Bitcoin. In fact, were people ever like were people even talking about the concept of putting assets on Bitcoin? Like this was when Vitalik was still writing for Bitcoin magazine, right? This yep. what does that mean, assets on Bitcoin? And was that even something? It's like it's like me, it's like me going right now, hey, hey David, like how can we how can we um start building houses on Mars? And you're gonna be like, dude, we haven't even like figured out how to get humans to Mars. What are you talking about? Houses on Mars. And that's it sounds so far fetched for my listeners, but really like you, that's what that's kind of like the comparison of what you were talking about. Well, the funny thing is, in the ecosystem, people have been talking about colored coins, right? Giving a specific coin or a specific transaction. Um, you know, people had different ideas about how you do it. People have been talking about that in the ecosystem since like 2011, right? There's all this early work that had been done. Um, and honestly, I had read all of the history of colored coins. I was following, you know, Alex and the other developers that were contributing to those projects. And they just didn't seem to be going anywhere, right? Because they didn't have any funding, right? There, there was no idea of you know a token sale um, in 2011, and that's sort of what got the project off the ground. Was JR was doing a token sale, probably the first token sale to my knowledge, where you could send Bitcoin to an address, and it was going to generate a new coin, and you could do it during the period of the 30 days of August of 2013. So the idea of doing assets, the idea of coloring coins and creating new assets on Bitcoin had been in the ether for a long time, but nobody had really got traction. And there was a couple of reasons. One, you know, Bitcoin was still really nascent. You know, 2013, you still got multi-sig coming along, right? I remember emailing Mike Hearn. Oh my God, that was such a big deal when multi-sig came <laughs> yeah. along. We take it for granted now. That was yeah, like that didn't even exist until 2013, right? I remember emailing Mike Hearn about, you know, what can we do with assets on on blockchains or how do we put, you know, stocks on blockchains and all these things. And he's like, yeah, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. But you know, it's it's still early. We're still locking down multi-sig and all this other stuff. So a lot of the developers from my assessment, were really in the weeds on the core technology, and they didn't have a lot of appetite to do second layer stuff yet, right? And they're like, "That's a distraction. We're still trying to get like the core stuff done." Um, and the other thing is that they didn't like the way people were proposing it at first. You know, they were putting metadata, and by they I mean J.R. Willett was putting metadata in the UTXO set. So this is in sort of the core informational set uh, around every transaction, and it's very hard to prune those UTXO sets. And so they were not a fan of the method he was using. Um, but what I figured out is there wasn't really a technological barrier; it was more of a social barrier. It was a psychological barrier. Yeah, yeah. And, and does. Were people worried about with colored coins and these early like assets? Were people worried about like fungibility because this was still very uh, anarcho-capitalist, libertarian crypto days, and so that was fungibility was still a it still is, but it was a very um, hot topic, right? Yeah, fungibility was a big concern. Uh, you know how this stuff was going to really work and scale. Um, you know, eventually, eventually. JR figured out how to do all of this using multi-sig, using sort of multiple inputs in uh, in a transaction, uh, and eventually all of this moved to uh, OpReturn, right? So they're putting hashes in. OpReturn ended up being the most efficient way to put this data 
uh, into the blockchain. So yeah, he made his proposal. He had made his proposal. I think he called it Bitcoin 2.0, which I think ruffled some feathers. That was a very bad of, idea. Yeah, <laughs> the branding, you know, it really ruffled some feathers of the the you know the core guys. And so it wasn't even a Bitcoin core at the time. It was all Bitcoin QT, right? Yeah. Um, and so it was this interesting sort of evolution. Um, but I, I like Jr. that you know he he didn't let it dissuade him or discourage him from moving it forward. He's like, look, I've got some Bitcoin. I'm going to do this. Anybody that wants to join me, let's put assets on on Bitcoin. And uh, and so he did it, and he raised five million dollars in Bitcoin, which was a lot of money. At the time, like that was still is a lot of money. It still is a lot of money, but I mean, by comparison to like a Kickstarter, I think it was larger than any Kickstarter at the time, right? And so it was like, wow, this is really great validation that people are interested in this. And they went heads down and they built the technology and they delivered it in April of that next year. And then you had the first assets, right? Made safe launching and later Tether all on Mastercoin. Um, but it's sort of it it pushed forward sort of one of the core questions like what is Bitcoin? Um, because there was definitely pushback and continued to be pushback from the developers. And I remember on Bitcoin Talk, there was this big debate. Can we talk about improvements to the Bitcoin protocol? Can we talk about other implementations uh, on Bitcoin as Bitcoin or is it some altcoin thing? And, as long uh, as it doesn't break consensus, though, why would it be considered not Bitcoin? I mean, if it's built on Bitcoin, if it's using the Bitcoin protocol and it doesn't break Bitcoin consensus, why can't you talk about it on Bitcoin Talk or on the Bitcoin subreddit? Right. And that's unfortunately the way it went is the way of censorship, right? Though so, Themis or Thermos, however it's pronounced, um, the guy that controls uh, Bitcoin Talk decided that any discussion of, you know, uh, improvements to the protocol or using stuff on the protocols, it was all banished to the altcoin forums, right? And he moved, I think, hundreds of threads about he Bitcoin, did. about uh, Mastercoin, and all these other it was things. Like, it was like Stalin's purge. Yeah, yeah. It's like get get the get out of here. This I is remember a, right because it's an existential question. You know, a lot of a lot of the early, you know, this was before that. that so yeah. so he created this altcoin. Uh, uh, folder this altcoin um sub sub forum in the bitcoin talk forum and it wasn't even bitcoin talk it was forum.bitcoin.org and that's where i know my listeners are like who cares but this is where 99% of all bitcoin related discussion amateur and professional you couldn't be a professional company without launching the a thread for your company on Forums.bitcoin.org, BitPay, even Coinbase, BitInstant, Mount Gox, all launched their companies on these forums. You couldn't do it without. This was the professional trades. It was the industry group. That's yep. why this was so important. This dictated the future of what we think about Bitcoin. Yep, exactly. JR launched MasterCoin with a post on Bitcoin Talk. Right. And so all the conversation was there or it was on our Bitcoin. Right. And so this is before the Civil War. It's before sort of but it was it was sort of a precursor to the question of like, what is OK and not OK to put on Bitcoin? And there's some people that believe only 
quote-unquote Bitcoin transactions are valid. And there are other people that believe, no, it's a decentralized permissionless ledger. And if it's a valid transaction, then it should be a valid use case. Right? Well, I mean, I, it, some people even yeah. went fundamentally farther than that. And, and some developers, I think it was Luke who said that even things like Satoshi Dice are spam. But why? These are, these are, are Bitcoin transactions. Who cares if person A versus person B are transacting and gambling? It doesn't matter. Who are you to say what should be a correct Bitcoin transaction or not? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, Luke went as far, Luke Jr., as to release a mining patch because I think he was maintaining some code uh, for uh, some of the mining uh, operations. I think it was something like 10% of the hash power was using uh, some reference to his code. He wrote a patch that would block all MasterCoin transactions. So he literally, as far as I know, launched the first censorship on the Bitcoin network itself. And so the MasterCoin uh, transactions would lose about one out of 10 blocks as long as uh, as long as it was, as it was sort of still operational. Uh, so eventually that blew up in, in Reddit where people were like, no, 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 no. You can't censor transactions. And I think all the miners dropped uh, the software patch that he had been writing for for that specific uh, use case, and it like, sort of all came out, um, you know. And so it wasn't a long-term problem, but it was like, wow, like you know, you got to really feel strongly in order to try to censor somebody's censorship trans- censorshipless transactions on Bitcoin. We have to give the, the the Bitcoin community a lot of credit because we look at the Bitcoin protocol as censorship resistant, right? And it's the same it's the same thing as freedom of speech, like. Why is censorship resistance so important and why is it so sacred for for crypto and for Bitcoin to really succeed? And it's the same thing as like freedom of, of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. It's when someone's saying something that you may not agree with, do you have the ability to censor that? And with right. Bitcoin, here you have, yes, I know Bitcoin. I know Satoshi launched Bitcoin for the reasons he did and you, whatever you want to say about that. And I know the early people got into Bitcoin like you and like me for specific reasons, but nothing gives us the right to say what Bitcoin is or isn't. So here we have these these years where Bitcoin was going through such immense stress. And I think that's one of the reasons that Satoshi left was that he didn't want to be the one to say what Bitcoin is or isn't. And he was worried. Or I think he was worried that even one word he would say could potentially change that. But here you have the ability for now um, people to to say what it is and to go so far as creating code to block certain types of transactions. But the Bitcoin community then eventually became the crypto community, went through this immense change. And yes, we were banished to the altcoin forums, but the conversation was still there. And now you you were raising money for this. You were creating projects. The conversation was there and it was open to Hey, Bitcoin may not just be Bitcoin and we need, we don't know what this is and we need to be allowed to experiment and to play around and to figure this out and have conversations without being censored. Right. And that's part of why I wrote the general theory of decentralized applications. What um, was that? Tell us about that. So it was it was already sort of being talked about like what do we call these things, right? And they were they were projects that kind of looked like Bitcoin, right? They had a blockchain backend, they had a peer-to-peer network, uh, they had a token, 
you know um so they looked like bitcoin but they were being used for something other than money right and so i was thinking a lot during that time this is uh, december of 13 right so mastercoin is is in the works you know i'm sitting on their uh, board of their foundation and so i thought through sort of all the language we could use and i eventually settled on decentralized applications or dapps or dapps um, as sort of a way of expressing and giving this a name, right? And uh, a lot of people just took that language and sort of ran with it. You know, uh, Ethereum launched as a platform for decentralized applications, um, and other people were coming up with with different versions of the language for themselves. You know, Larimer was coming up with uh, decentralized autonomous corporations, and you know, uh, Charles was sort of thinking about DAOs. You know, decentralized autonomous organizations. So DAOs and DAPs and DACs were all sort well, of. Well, Vitalik originally wanted stars. to put Ethereum on the Bitcoin blockchain. Remember that? Oh, I remember that very clearly. He was writing proposals to uh, Mastercoin, kind of basically saying, hey, what can we do with scripting? And, you know, there was even more of a backlash than had been against JR was like, no, 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 no. We can't do any of those things on, on Bitcoin. How did that and, play out? Well, you know, I think he understood very clearly that the core developers weren't going to make any accommodations uh, for him to do scripting on Bitcoin. And so he came to a very practical solution, which is, all right, well, you know, I'm going to go do this off on a different chain. At first, he was going to use, um, I want to say, the PureCoin or one of the other uh, code bases. But eventually, when he realized he was sort of getting a lot of traction and resources, he, he decided he could make his own blockchain from scratch. Um, and so that was all around that same time in December and January. So January of 14 is when Vitalik announced at the Miami Bitcoin conference. I, right. We had Mo on, on the show. Yeah. Uh, we just released Mo's episode last week, and he talked about <laughs> that speech. Yeah. It was huge. I mean, when he, Vitalik gave that speech, um, half the room emptied following him um, out the door uh, after it concluded. Like, I'd never seen so many people chase a speaker out uh, of the room. Um, but, you know, there was all this pent up energy to do coding and scripting and all these things on the blockchain. As we sort of discussed this whole year, you know, it had been sort of stymied for different reasons. And so people were eager to do this, um, and they needed an avenue, and Vitalik provided that avenue. I, I remember sort of this was even called at the time Bitcoin 2.0, or or you know, uh, all, I don't like that that no. term. But yeah, and it sort of fell out of usage. But uh, you know, I'm almost glad that it didn't go on Bitcoin. That all this didn't go on Bitcoin, and. Although maybe the intentions for the early developers weren't the best in, in terms of censorship, I think that the decision was correct. And maybe Bitcoin Bitcoin is what it is, and it's great at that. But doing too much on Bitcoin may not be the best idea. It's like someone hands you a bagel and not enough cream cheese, and you try to spread the cream cheese on the bagel, and it doesn't cover enough of the bagel. You know what I mean? Like yep. you're spreading yourself a little too thin. And maybe Bitcoin's good at what it is good at. And not diluting that and keeping it concentrated in that is the best. So I'm still like, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist when it comes to decentralization and, and ideologically, but I'm also a capitalist and I want to earn money and I want to be involved in all these other projects because they're cool and they're fun. And um, I should be allowed to do that. Yeah. Well, and I would propose that, you know, network effects specialize, 
right? I think the internet has been a great lesson in this. I mean, if you look at you know the rise of Facebook and the network effect they built around social, you know, later on when Google wanted to get into social, without even with all of their money and power and size, they couldn't displace uh, Facebook. Right. If you remember Google Circles and all that uh, stuff they try to Google do with Google Plus, Google Plus it's not yeah. even it's not even around anymore. Right. And so the the network effect there for social is really really hard to to copy. Right. And so Bitcoin, to I, you know, I'll give it credit, has amazing staying power despite the high fees, despite the lack of sort of scalability. You know, um, it's held on to fifty percent. 60% uh, of the market. You know, I mean, it's down from the 90% it used to be, uh, but it's still pretty significant around the use case for, uh, you know, trading pairs on the exchanges and digital gold, you know. And so I think it can be useful for all those things. But like you said, we need specialization. We need Bitcoin Cash, you need Dash, you need Decred, you need all these other versions where people can experiment with low fees and faster confirmation times and Ethereum doing, you know, uh, scripting and all the rest. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? Then you need Crypto Tax Audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. You, you remind me of an, of an argument that I used to make to people about this because I used to be much more of a Bitcoin only, everything else is kind of um, stupid, but then I eventually started you know, questioning myself, but an argument would be that if Dash or if um, Litecoin or if um, Ethereum or or any of these other uh, projects launched an amazing feature that was battle tested, eventually Bitcoin would adopt that feature. And that would be my reasoning to explain to people why it's important for these other projects to exist. Do you think that's still the case? I don't think the technology that's developed elsewhere can realistically be ported to Bitcoin just because of sort of they go down different code paths, they go down uh, different decisions around architecture. And so what I think we're going to get is is more and more different over time versus, yeah, that's what people presumed back in the day. That was sort of like the whole- I light- remember. A lot, whole Litecoin pitch, right? Was, oh, we're going to do our experiments over on Litecoin. But there's not a lot of development going on in Litecoin. I don't know if you've checked the GitHub. You know, there's no sort of amazing new features that people well, are testing. Was Litecoin there. going the way of Do- like Dogecoin? Like, why does Litecoin, Litecoin, like you said, Litecoin, and I'm not, I'm not going to put words into Charlie Lee's mouth, and I, I, I can't say this accurately, but I feel like Litecoin was kind of pitched as the, the, the silver to Bitcoin's gold or the test bed for. Bitcoin development, but why then? Then, if there's not much development being going on in Litecoin, then why does it even have value? Like, why was it pumping? Why is it even here? Well, it's interesting. The network effect uh, of Litecoin has really persisted, even though you know uh, it's sort of older tech at this point. You know, people you know have an affinity for it, and you know it, it served back in the early days in like twelve and thirteen. There weren't a lot of other coins, so if you were on the exchange. 
and maybe you were bearish on the price of Bitcoin that day, you could go into Litecoin, right? It was one of those few alternatives. Um, and I think with the evolution of Tether, getting back to uh, Mastercoin eventually rebranded as Omni. So Mastercoin became Omni Protocol. Omni Protocol is still on Bitcoin, though it's also now on Ethereum these days as an ERC-20. Um, that's, that's super recent, though. Yeah, that's super recent. Just just recently, for for a long time before, you know, Tether represented most of the assets on blockchain far more than were on Ethereum or any other platform. You know, certainly in 2014, 2015, even in I think into 2016. Um, and so, you know, a lot of credit to Craig and the other folks that uh, to built that. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's sort of interesting how it's it's all evolved. You mentioned earlier um, Mike Hearn, and I feel like the history, his history has been whitewashed. Um, it's mm. been it's been deleted. Um, no one, most of the listeners probably don't, don't have never even heard that name before, um, unless you've been involved in early days. Um, I have my I have my own personal um, dis- I had my own personal disagreements with Mike, and um, but. In, in all fairness, he was a very integral part of early Bitcoin development. And a lot of the Bitcoin developers today, um, the hardcore ones, will disagree with me when I say that he was extremely important. And the reason I want to I bring it up because his story kind of commingles with, and I've tried to get him on the show, but his story commingles with with this, with this story a lot, you know, Mike was an early Bitcoin developer. He'd, he'd worked for Google. So he was seen as one of the first, like he wasn't a fringe developer. He was a, an engineer at Google and was very, very prominent. Um, and he, and he was a publicly facing developer. So he would talk to people and make speeches and he would talk about the future and development of, of Bitcoin and actually go and write the code for it. Um, and then one day he just, he rage quit. He, he left. He wrote this piece saying Bitcoin is over. It's not going to succeed. And, and no one has really heard from him since. Um, and this was when a lot of the Civil War stuff was happening with with Bitcoin development and the, the multi-coin universe was really being discovered. Um, what, do you, what do you know from that history? And what, what do you have to th- what do you think about why he left the, the Bitcoin world? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. It's because they wouldn't increase the block size, right? So Mike, um, like you said, was a very prominent developer. I give Mike a lot of credit. I think he's a very, very, very intelligent guy that contributed a lot uh, to those early days. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's one of the first guys Satoshi sent a transaction to or did, you know, sort of way back. Um, so he was involved very, very early. At the same time as like Gavin and Dreesen. And, uh, you know, so Mike is very practical. He's like, look, guys, I work at Google. If things don't scale, if like we hit a wall, it's going to be embarrassing, right? It's going to be an issue. Like we can't just let transactions grow until they hit one megabyte. And then all of a sudden, you know, fees go up and the user experience changes, right? So for him as a, a professional, you know, in in the world of Google, where things have to perform, and you know, you can't let systems fail. Um, he was really worried about what happened when, you know, uh, Bitcoin hit one megabyte in transactions, right? Which at the time wasn't an issue. In in 2013, 2014, the transactions 
hadn't got uh, big enough yet, but they were growing and growing and growing, um, and it was getting closer uh, to that one megabyte limit. And so Gavin Andreessen, literally the guy you know Satoshi handed the keys to, um, you know, kind of brought this up and did a series of uh, posts, a series of sort of studies about you know what might be the best way to increase the the block size and how much, you know, eight megabytes, twenty megabytes. You know, everybody had a different proposal. Hold on, pa- pause there for a second. So, yeah. so Gavin and Mike, and uh, and a large part of the community were having very honest, real discussions mm-hmm. about raising the block size. So this is before Bitcoin Cash. This was before yep. the whole Civil War, Segwit Two X, that whole thing. Raising the block size was a a normal conversation. It was part of Bitcoin. It was agreed that things need to change. It wasn't contentious at all. What changed? What changed is Bitcoin Core, which was sort of rebranded from Bitcoin QT. How did that get rebranded? From what I know, um, Greg and Luke and Adam and the others yeah, decided to make a change. And that wasn't controversial at the time. Um, though sort of looking back, it seems like they were sort of changing something to call this uh, Bitcoin core and that's it's the core of the system. Um, but you know the the issue was there there were a lot of proposals and there was a lot of back and forth, but nobody at Bitcoin QT or Bitcoin core could sort of come to a consensus on, on how much to increase the size, you know, I think Adam put out a proposal and different developers put out a proposal. It should increase this much or according to Moore's law or the bandwidth version of Moore's law. You know, I was in all those those GitHub uh, discussions. So some of the most anti, like changing Bitcoin or some of the most anti block size limit people that we know today were actually putting proposals to increase the block size limit. I remember yes. this. But yes. so 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 just because they couldn't come to a consensus on what the actual limit should be, should be a should it be a changing scale? Should it be how did that go then to like we shouldn't change at all? Because Gavin and um, Mike weren't willing to let it go. So when they couldn't get the other developers to agree you know, I think uh, Mike made the point at one point that you know Gavin should revoke their GitHub keys and just do it. But Gavin, you know, was was very uh, had a he had a very gentle touch. He didn't want to be the person in charge, right? He eventually handed off uh, the GitHub keys to to others, right? And so rather than do that, they started. Uh, I want to say it was uh, Bitcoin XT. Or some version thereof. There was a series of okay. Well, we're just going to take all the code and we'll let the community vote. And if they switch to our code, then that'll be an indication, right? It'll be a vote that people want this. But the problem was, you know, the core guys very much took this as sort of uh, an attack, right? How, how dare anybody create a different version of Bitcoin, a different implementation, um, and use it as a means of sort of, you know, rallying people to to pick a different version? And so, if you go back, I'm trying to think about the the website that it was on. Maybe it was Coin Dance or one of the others. But you can look at all the history of the different implementations of Bitcoin and their adoption over time, right? So there is these different attempts, uh, Bitcoin XT and others. Uh, to get the miners to say, "Hey, yeah, we do want to, we do want an increase, right?" They basically went to the community and tried to get them, uh, you know, excited about you know a block size increase. Um, but you know, it, it set up this situation where 
you know, the core guys took this hard stance on the other side and said, no, we can't do an increase. And, you know, it led to the whole, you know, cons- you know, meeting in, in Hong Kong and the meeting in New York and all the rest of the. There, there are good arguments, though, of why we shouldn't have a block size increase. And one of the reasons is um, that it does push for more centralization and, and doesn't incentivize having a lot more people running um, running nodes. And and I kind of like that, but at the same time, Bitcoin does need to scale. And so the implementations that now are being pushed for, like Lightning, don't have that rich user experience that Bitcoin has, but um, it does work. And so because because the because the um, block size never increased, it almost pushed for like other fixes or other scaling ideas that allow for the continued decentralization of Bitcoin. Don't you think that that's a good thing though? Um, I don't think it was healthy because you still have to have a functional layer one, right? I'm, I'm all for layer two solutions. I've been in favor of lightning and all these other solutions. I'm sort of like a yes. And yes, we needed bigger blocks and we needed lightning and we needed all these other things right even for for the case of lightning you know it's more efficient if you can open and close a lightning channel with a low fee right it doesn't help lightning that i have to pay you know a dollar fee or a 5 dollar fee or it doesn't help lightning that you have to wait for a block to open up a channel so you're still yep. stuck if you want to open up a channel lightning people don't realize that if you want to open up a channel and not use existing channels which are very centralized and yep. i'm a very big fan of lightning as well but I'll say this, that you still have to wait for a block. Sure, of course. And even beyond waiting for a block, you have to you know, pay a fee to open it and close it. So if fees continue to rise and you have $50 fees or $100 fees, you've got to do a lot of lightning transactions for covering the cost and averaging out a lower cost because you still have to open and close a channel with a Bitcoin transaction. right? So I think any layer two solution is healthier if there's a, a sort of a path to scalability on layer one. And I want to push back. Everybody everybody made that statement you made earlier about it increases the resources of, of running a node. Yeah, Tell and, me why I'm wrong with that. Well, I just challenge people to run the numbers. So let's say you went from one to two megabytes, right? That was what was on the table, right? Uh, okay. It's going to take a little bit more hard drive space, and it's going to take a little more bandwidth. And if you look at the amount of hard drive space, we're talking about pennies, right? I can go to Best Buy and get a five terabyte hard sure, drive. Sure, but it was, the, it was the precedent of it. If you change it to two now, it makes it easier to increase it again down the road. Sure. And then keep increasing it over time. Well, and that was that was the whole idea, right? I mean, technology is moving forward, right? We're not using floppy disks anymore, you know. And uh, we, we, you know, it, it's sort of like presuming, oh, we can't let in the, uh, the, you know, the CD-ROMs, and then you know, people will expect even more space. Like that's okay, <laughs> like, you know. And and so the point is, the cost of running a node probably would have gone from I don't know. Uh, 50 or $60 a year to $70 a year. And there are about 10,000 people in the world that run nodes. So instead of doing that small incremental increase on the cost of running a node, uh, we instead pushed a huge increase in fees on everybody using the system. Right, the the combined transaction fees, I think somebody added it up at one point, were greater than the entire 
you know, sort of loss of funds on Mt. Gox, right? Like these, there's an enormous amount of Bitcoin going into fees. Um, and so, you know, it's, I haven't checked that number, so if, I, if, I don't know if that is accurate, but. If increasing the fees earns miners more money, why would miners want a larger block size where theoretically they would lose money? They wouldn't make as much. But that's the thing. They did want a larger block size. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, it doesn't make any sense. It, it does because they're business people. They thought if more people used Bitcoin, the price would be able to grow. It's that simple, right? And so if you look at the history in 17, you can't really say that they're wrong, right? When the price rocketed up in 17, fees got totally out of control. And they got to 50 bucks a Bitcoin transaction. I paid for a fee in I remember. December of 17. I paid $50 for a Bitcoin transaction, and it was stuck in the mempool for eight days. The fees got so bad that 71% of all Bitcoin addresses were no longer sendable from because there was less money in the address that would be required to send the fee. If that isn't the definition of broken- Oh, I mean, if listen, if I, I, if, I, if I told you in 2013 that your wallet app on your phone, first of all, if I told you in 2013 that you'd be able to use Bitcoin on your iPhone, you laugh at me because these were the days when Apple would actually- ban all Bitcoin wallets. But imagine if that didn't exist. And I told you in 2013 that when you had less than $100 worth of Bitcoin on your phone wallet, your wallet would say, don't, I'll tell you right now what your wallet would say, because I literally can pull up a wallet. I have a wallet here on my phone that has less than, I have the, the copay wallet here on my phone and there's less than $100 in the wallet. And I'll tell you exactly what it says. And if I told you this, you laugh at me. It says, Spending this balance will will need significant Bitcoin network fees. So basically, right. the wallet telling you that you can't even send your own money out because the fees that it would require would never it would never get picked up by a uh, by and I, it's twenty dollars, not a hundred dollars, but it would require um, more money and fees to do that, or it would take too long. Um, right. Yeah, that's that's a fundamental break in in sort of user experience, and so you know we saw sort of things got really you know heated in seventeen and fees went through the roof. Imagine being a new Bitcoin user and you went to Coinbase.com and you bought a hundred dollars of Bitcoin, and everybody told you don't keep it on an exchange, put it on your own wallet, and you said okay, 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 and you sent it to Blockchain.com wallet, and it cost you fifty bucks and took eight days to get there. You lost half of your Bitcoin in the process. Can you imagine that as your first experience in Bitcoin? I can't imagine why you know uh, the the sort of the whole momentum you know crashed. And so we just in this recent bull run, right? We saw I think eighty percent of transactions were taking longer than twenty four hours, and fees got back again to four, five, six dollars a transaction. So every time we have this increase in usage you get this worse and worse user experience, right? And all people are doing are sort of obscuring that with keeping stuff on exchanges, which isn't safe, as you and I know sure. from Fair the Gox idea. days, right? And so, but but that's the practical application, right? Because they can send it around and trade it on the exchange and there aren't any there aren't any big fees until they do a withdrawal, right? Or do a deposit. And there are there are good developments like Liquid Bitcoin that allow you to go from exchange to certain wallets that are in a second layer. And so we have to say, you know, Bitcoin still exists today. It's growing. The, the industry is growing. The community is growing. The transactions are growing. 
So it's not, it's, I want to point out that at the same time it is growing and, but at the same time, there are more projects and more um, different blockchains that are being launched and you haven't been, you know, out of this. You've been, you launched one of the largest funds. Um, it was like a $200 million fund at the time. And now you're, you're doing um, a, a, a private equity. I think it's pronounced Yeoman's Growth Capital. Mm-hmm. Yep. My family office. Yep. Okay. And so you're still involved in projects. You're investing in projects. What do you see? Where are we at now in the present and where are we going in the future now that we've talked about the past? Well, I think the people that pick the elegant solutions are able to sort of really scale and get the most value out of this, right? So at that same conference in January of 2014, uh, I was talking with Paul Snow about the idea of decentralizing everything, right? Decentralizing operating systems and programs and all the rest. And that ended up being the conversation that originated Factum, right? And you know now they're this huge protocol around putting data on the blockchain. And so that's become the future is, you know, it's gone beyond money and transactions. And now people are putting data on the blockchain, people are putting identities on the blockchain. So there's this whole renaissance around security tokens with Polymath and Smart Valor and all the different projects building exchanges and issuance platforms. Uh, for securities on the blockchain. So all those things we imagined back in 2013, uh, they've become reality. And so that's pretty amazing. I mean, like you said, we have to take uh, a minute to appreciate how far we've come. Right? When I heard about Bitcoin in 2012, it was 10 bucks. And there were 10, 10 million Bitcoin at the time. So there were $100 million of digital assets in the world. And today, if I go to CoinMarketCap and look at the top, there are $344 billion of crypto in the world. And that's that's amazing. But I think we're headed towards $100 trillion. I really recommend you know, uh, the article by Carl, Kyle Samani uh, titled $100 trillion. Uh, and he sort of outlines how between replacing you know, poor performing currencies, uh, part of the equity markets, part of these different global markets, we can get to that kind of level in the next five, ten years, and I think he's he's right about that. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see this this industry continue to grow. But I'm as optimistic as ever because you know we've we've seen. I mean, if I had told you and Ch- Charlie in in 2012 that like every major bank in the world would be using blockchain in one form or another, and that you know you know, major tech companies would be launching their own uh, crypto stable coins and all the rest. Like these were like sort of the the fevered dreams and hopes of, <laughs> you know, channels on on uh, Bitcoin talk way back when, right? And now that stuff's real. And so it's been really cool to see that evolution. And so with my family office, I'm still investing in open source, decentralized uh, technology. And you know, I believe very much in this ethic. And the cool thing, like you said, is there's competition. You know, um, the fact that there's Ethereum and there's Factum and there's all these other projects you can choose from gives you a huge amount of of sort of power as a user to choose things that make sense for you. And that's that's amazing, right? You can vote with your feet. If you don't like the way what governance is run in one protocol, you can go to another. And so. Uh, 
That's, I think, the future is we're going to have ever more specialization and protocols tackling different parts of the ecosystem in different verticals. What are you most excited about now? Um, and I know it's like a general question, but for you, it's a it's a question that I'm eager to hear the answer to. Um, you know, we've let's look at buzzwords, right? We've got Bitcoin and then we have blockchain, decentralized ledger technology, security tokens, stable coins. What are we looking at for like the buzzword for 2020? What are we looking at what people are going to be excited about for, for the next year? Well, I think I would put security tokens and stable coins sort of all in the bucket of reflecting all the world's um, economic and business systems in blockchain, right? And then there's the native blockchain side of things, right? So I don't know if you've seen Paul Snow's proposal for fourth generation stable coins, um, but it's pretty amazing. These, these are stable coins that have no counterparty. These are stable coins that have no reserve. They don't require a smart contract. It's just a price oracle um, and the user, right? And so it's the protocol and the user. And so all of those sort of early issues that we had around, you know, trusting, you know, any stable coin holder, right, has a reserve. Um, you know, those are about to sort of be problems of the past. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff being developed. That's uh, called Pegnet. And uh, you know that idea of I can reflect the value or uh, exposure of any asset in the world, you know, a dollar or a euro or an ounce of gold on the blockchain as a user uh, is immensely powerful, right? Because we can basically rebuild the financial world, you know, on this new this new ledger technology. So for me, that's that's so cool because these are sort of longstanding problems. That we didn't have solutions to, you know, we sort of built the best we could back in thirteen or fourteen, but now we're solving some of those problems around custody and reserves and all the rest. And that follows um, your your mantra of, yep. you know, everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. But I want to push, not push back, but I want to ask you, you know, everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized, but should it be decentralized? I mean, like, what if you have things? where the solutions may not need decentralization, but people are going to do it anyways, just to try. Is that a bad thing? Like permission blockchains, for example, or industry chains? You know, I, I think it's it's a question of, you know, utility. If, if people gain value uh, from it being an open system, and I think in most cases they do, then eventually those open systems will gain more market share and more usage, right? It's like developers could use Windows, but they use Linux, right? And they have more freedom to change the operating system and run it the way they want. And now Linux dominates uh, server infrastructure, something like 99% of the world's servers run on Linux, right? So, you know, I think that's sort of a good example of where we're headed. Like, you know, yes, um, the more we can empower people at the edge of the network, to have control over their own data and control over their own money, I think the better the world is going to be. And so I think there's cases where people are going to make decisions and say, well, you know, the user doesn't really care about, you know, the this aspect or that aspect, and I'm going to just make it easier on them. So there's always this tension between sort of like convenience and security. Um, but we're making some fundamental advances, whether that's a very it, good point. 
Yeah. Um, that's a very, 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 and I want you to repeat that because people need to need to understand that there is a trade-off when you have a better user experience and then on the other side with security and privacy. There is a trade-off. And yes, we always want better user experience, but that sometimes means that privacy and security can go down. And if we can continue having a good user experience and convenience, then the privacy and security uh, remains or even increases, then we're onto something big. That's really important, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, none of the exchanges I used in 2012 still exist. So I'm really happy that I didn't keep my crypto on exchanges, right? That would have been the convenient or easy thing to do. But I went and downloaded a Bitcoin QT wallet. You know, uh, I got the whole blockchain on my machine and I synced up all the transactions, you know, and I transferred the Bitcoin to my own wallet, right? And so things have gotten a lot easier. You don't have to download Bitcoin QT. You know, there's Exodus, there's Bread Wallet, there's all these great, you know, wallets now. Um, that give you a much higher level of, of security than we had in the back in the day. But it still is on people as a fundamental responsibility to sort of change their mentality, right? This is something you own. It's not something the bank owns anymore, right? This is, this is your value. This is your money. These are your assets. And so you sort of have to be conscious of that and take, uh, take a greater responsibility. But the tech is getting better. And whether it's you know security in the uh, chips and the phones, or uh, if it's sort of better recovery techniques, people are trying to push the limits of how convenient they can make it while still being really secure. So that's not easy work, but big credit to you know all the wallet builders out there that are doing that. David, how can my listeners follow you and see what see what you're working on? Uh, sure. So I'm on uh, Twitter. D Johnston EC. Um, and so E as an echo C as in Charlie. And so, you know, I, I put a lot on Twitter. I also put a lot on medium. So I write a lot of my longer, uh, posts on medium. So under the same name, D Johnston EC on medium. And, uh, yeah, I mean, really my fundamental goal hasn't changed. I want to empower as many people with financial freedom in the world as I can. And finding projects that do that in a practical way, um, I, te- I tend to focus on the infrastructure stuff. You know, I think there's still so much fundamental infrastructure to build uh, in the ecosystem. So that's where I tend to to spend my time. And you know, uh, yeah, it's just been an amazing journey working with all these projects. Onward and upward. Indeed. Thank you, David, so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Charlie. Talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember... 
Strength in numbers and information is power.